Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. We've got a fantastic talk. We first encountered Katya during the depths of the first round of pandemicking and immediately she became a favourite of the podcast. We love her writing, we love her way of looking at things and she was a big hit at the festival last year. What we've got Katya to talk to you about is the road to war. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, speaking to you here in the HQ tent, Katya Hoyer. Thank you. Um, it's good to be back. I thought I'd sneak another bit of non-military history into this uh, place, but I'm doing it in an olive t-shirt, so I feel maybe I can get away with it, but <laughs> we'll see. I might mention the war once or twice if it makes you happy, um, so we'll, we'll see how we get on. When James first asked me to do this talk, um, I thought actually this is going to be a really easy number. I mean, it's not like 1914 where there's a million books and reasons why the First World War broke out and why it happened and whose fault it is. There's no sleepwalking here, let's face it. I was mistaken when I started sort of researching it and looking into it and, and wondering how to build up this talk. I started thinking more and more about actually when Hitler did go to war in September 1939. Yes, it was his plan, so there's, there's literally no debate around whose fault this is and, and why it happened. Um, but the big question for me is how did he get the German people to do it? I mean, yes, there's always an argument, you know, fair enough, there's a lot of propaganda, you've got Hitler, you've got all of that stuff going on. But ultimately, he was only in power at this point for six years. And people say about the French and the British public at this point, you know, appeasement and all of those things happens because they were fed up with the First World War. It was a traumatic experience for all of them. The same is true for the German public. They've gone through all of the same stuff and lost at the end of it. So what on earth would drive them in 1939 to go, well, hey, let's go to war again? It, it didn't happen. And that's the thing that I'm trying to uh, sort of look into today. How did Hitler manage to get an entire generation of Germans that had just kind of more or less got out of all of the calamity that the First World War caused for them? How did he manage to get them into this, basically, to sign up to, a, to another and even more devastating war than the previous one, and one that would entirely just destroy the nation, basically, once again, for Germany to start yet again um, from, from scratch. So I want to start with um, a, a very famous question that was asked in 1943, and that was, are you ready for total war? 
Good, I'm so relieved nobody said yes. <laughs> I had nightmares about asking this question here and I woke up kind of sweat drenched thinking, what do I do if they all jump up and shout, yeah. So good, there wasn't even one, that's, that's great, excellent. Well, when Goebbels asked this question in February 1943, um, he did get standing ovations, roaring applause, and those images are, are almost infamous now. I would say that's probably Goebbels' most famous speech and that's saying something. Um, so these are the images when you look at, I don't know, documentaries, textbooks and so on, they're always used to show, well, look, this is how keen Germans were to go to war. He asked them, do you want total war? Again, after the First World War had been uh, sort of merged into a total war, certainly from 1916 onwards. And here Germans are again going, yes, let's do this. But the thing is, whilst Goebbels was very, very keen to point out to people that this was a mixed audience, so he'd invited... Uh, blue-collar, white-collar workers, um, aristocracy, and all sorts of different people into it, but they were all hand-selected. This is an audience where virtually everyone who was there was approved by the regime to be there, and then Goebbels had gone through the trouble of telling them exactly when to um, basically applaud, when to get up, when to shout, when to do things. He would later brag that this was the best-trained audience that had ever existed in, in human history. And yet we're falling into the same propaganda trap that people fell in at the time, now, if we assume that this is representative of the German public. Because it isn't. It's really quite interesting when you look at the 1st of September um, in, in 1939, the response that ge the German public showed to the outbreak of war differs completely from what happened on the 1st of August 1914. Um, and that I found quite fascinating because there isn't really public life, so you can't really gauge what Germans actually think at the time. It's very difficult to work out when you haven't got a free press and people can't go and demonstrate or, or voice their opinions. But the Nazis themselves sent out Gestapo officers and other sort of, you know, secret um, agents basically to try and work out what do people actually make of this. And they all come back with the same reports. People are unhappy, we've got to do something here. Um, there's a very, very muted atmosphere when you look at, for instance, people's reports from the times so of people's diaries, entries and letters and things. School children, for instance, had the day off and they all remember it didn't feel like th they were supposed to have a day off so that they could all like march around and, and jeer and, and, you know, basically be happy that war had broken out. But the atmosphere across the country is completely muted. And you get the exact same reports from the SPD, from the Social Democrats, who still have people in the underground working, basically. And they're sending the same reports back to the SPD um, cells in exile in Prague and in, in Paris. They're saying people do not want this war. They use the information to try and sort of get people to rise up against the Nazis. doesn't work. But the, the Nazis themselves are hugely worried. They'd been start, they started in 1937, uh, so sort of two years earlier, coming up with a really cunning sort of staggered rationing plan for when they go to war because they knew this would be hugely unpopular and they need to keep it away from the public as much as possible. So what I want to do is go through um, some of the reasons why I think people were still going to war in 1939 and fought it, you know, as they did basically in a, in a brutal and completely committed fashion to the very end, despite the fact that they didn't want to go to war, most people, in, in 1939. So we could go to the next slide. Um, so I want to start with uh, the First World War. I know it's not what we're here for, <laughs> but I like the First World War, so let's start there. Um, I actually think this is the biggest reason. People get too hung up about the Treaty of Versailles, in my view, and about all of the other stuff that happened during the Weimar Republic, but the First World War, ironically, despite all of the trauma and calamity that it caused, in my view, is the biggest reason why the Second World War happened. Um, because it, it does, I mean, you can see this here, that's a painting uh, from, the, from the Weimar uh, painter Otto Dix, who was very, very critical 
of um, the war and, and kind of the militarism that came with it and the nationalism that came with it. He, he later obviously <laughs> ran into trouble uh, with the Nazis as well. But you can see here the sort of, I think, quite a good image of what stuck with people after this war. So, you know, an entire generation, same as in Britain and in France, an entire generation of young men was obviously affected by that and had been, had been brutalized by it. But this is also the first war that really affects the civilian population. So if you're um, a woman, say, and you're like 40 in 1939, you would have traumatic memories and experiences of the First World War, even though you weren't in the front lines necessarily. Um, same with children that grew up during the First World War. They will remember the starvation, the typhus epidemic, the, the Spanish flu afterwards, all of that stuff, not having um, you know, things like even soap and stuff like that because of the British naval blockade, obviously. I'm not blaming you lot, obviously, for the <laughs> Second World War. Um, but basically, because of that, everything was lacking, and people remember that. So when Hitler says in 1939, oh, let's go to war again, you know, people go through all of that in their heads. They think this. And they think, actually, we don't want that. But at the same time, it also created an entire generation of, of kind of people that had seen violence, that are used to violence, um, that are used to political violence and using, using uh, war and, and violence as a political means of achieving stuff. And also a generation that had learned to make do for four years. They knew, OK, however bad this gets, you know, we've been through worse. So in many ways, I think the First World War is, in, in German historiography and in, in sort of German acad academia, this is often called the Urkatastrophe, the arch-catastrophe of the 20th century. And then everything kind of falls back to this rather than to, to what the Nazis did in the 1930s. Let's quickly talk about the Treaty of Versailles, just because it is so often cited as the uh, sort of main reason why the Second World War happened. I think that's a complete nonsense, and it lets a lot of people off the hook, I think. If you sit there and blame the kind of list of, of sanctions and, and uh, the economic uh, reparations, war reparations in particular, as a reason to, to go to war again, then this should have happened with the Franco-Prussian War, say, for example, where similar indemnities, if you compare that, were charged. Um, the Napoleonic War, same thing. This really isn't out of the ordinary. And the reasons for, for yes, the, the economic reasons, the economic stuff that happens in the Weimar Republic is important, and I'll get to that in a minute, but it's not all caused by the Treaty of Versailles. One thing that I would say is that it compounds a lot of the stuff that the First World War had caused already. So if you're coming home and you've just spent four years, or even if it's just a, a shorter stint, even if it's just a year or so, as a soldier and you've just seen your, your mates blown up, you pulled people off the battlefield that were, were screaming for their mother, you, you've seen people with their entrails hanging out, and all of that stuff, and you come back, and now this tells you, the world tells you, that this is all your fault. Not only have you lost, but actually you brought this on, on yourself. I think that's the bit that is really quite crucial, is this kind of compounding of all of the kind of anger, the frustration, the, the hurt that had already happened, this compounds it. But I think that's something that doesn't in and of itself create a situation where you get to the Second World War automatically. Okay, um, this again also leads back to the First World War. Yes, I am a bit obsessed with that. I like it um, because it does create a lot of the uh, tensions and things that you see later. Um, but these are the, the so-called Freikorps, um, who were a direct response to the First World War. People often see them as like a proto-Nazi kind of group. This leads directly, these, these kind of, uh, so these are, are veterans that came back from the First World War and then stayed in their units largely and, and were kind of in the, in the same command structures and, and carried on existing, even though they weren't really part of the army anymore. And they are quite often, um, like I said, treated as sort of proto-Nazis, not least because they started using some of the similar 
like sim symbols there, so you can see the, the Totenkopf, the skull and bones there, for example, that's later obviously used by the SS. Uh, you've got very early use of things like swastikas, uh, Hitler as a name to some of them, as a name giver. Um, so yes, there are similarities, and it does. some of them do stay, but the ones that initially come back are actually older veterans. They tend to sort of be in their late 20s, early 30s, and they stay in these units because they've, they've just lost this war, come back after four years, and now they get told, go back in the office, or go back onto your field, or go back into your coal mine. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a problem for, for many soldiers now coming back from combat situations and going back into the mundanities. You know, your, your wife sits there at home and says, what color curtains shall we have? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of thing that's really a problem, especially after the First World War with, with its entire kind of immersive nature. Everyone was completely shaped by that, and, and some people just couldn't cope with it and just decided it's much easier, let's just pretend the struggle continues and the struggle continues at home and we'll find some, some more enemies basically to deal with. And, and what they do find is um, they buy into basically this entire ideology of, of this kind of infamous Deutschstoßlegende. I know you like me saying German words, so there you go. <laughs> Deutschstoßlegende, um, the stab in the back myth, um, which um, gives people, I suppose, a bit of dignity back. I mean, it seems totally absurd from our point of view now, but the, they came back having not only lost the war, but lost all of their comrades, their dignity and everything else. And here's somebody saying, actually, you know what? You were a really good soldier. You would have won this. The problem was with the people back home. And now you're given a chance. Why don't you stay on, you know, stay in your same barracks with your mates, with your officers, and you carry on the struggle and you deal with those people that made you lose the war, namely the Jews and the, the communists and the socialists, um, who they blamed basically as, as the sort of stab in the back myth. These were the enemies at home. Um, that, that they now dealt with. So they, in a way, it continued the struggle of the First World War onto the streets. And this, once again, is something that Hitler has absolutely nothing to do with. It just happens because of this experience that people had in the First World War and this kind of widespread disaffection with what came afterwards. But it did get people into a mindset whereby they sort of accepted that there were armed people running around the streets. I mean, nobody now, or most people don't stop to think, well, hang on, how did Hitler actually end up? as a private Austrian individual with an army of nearly four million people by 1933 and 1934, you know, with the SA, this is the reason. People kind of got used to it. Um, so if you live in, in Munich or in Berlin or in Hamburg or in the, in the rural region, you, you open your window one morning and there'll be people with like grenades and, you know, machine gun nests in, in your street. You know, and that would be totally absurd to us today and it certainly wouldn't work. Well, not to you probably, but it would be to me. Um, but but this, this, people just get used to that. Um, and this is something that Hitler can tap into later when he builds the SA and the SS. These are not the nucleus as such of them. Many of these older veterans in particular do go home when they get told to go home. So once the, Weimar, uh, once the, the Treaty of Versailles kicks in and, and Germany is only allowed 100,000 soldiers, these get told to disband the Freikorps because they're counted um, by the Allied Control Council as... Um, uh, like sort of soldiers basically as military um, units and so they have to go so most of these people being law-abiding ordinary German people they go okay fair enough can't do this anymore they just go home and what stays is a very radicalized core of younger people so those people feel that they've lost out on the first world first world war experience as it were just about so these people would sort of be in their late teens um, and they stay a lot of them um, and are much much more radicalized and ideal and, and kind of ideologically more extreme core basically compared to the original Freikorps. I think another problem again links into that um, is that the way that soldiers were treated after the First World War in the Weimar Republic is a huge problem. 
And again, this is nothing that Hitler has got anything to do with. So yes, there is a welfare system and the, the new social democratic government tries to build that up very quickly and their benefits and, and all of those things. But there's still also widespread poverty. So scenes like this, this is in Berlin, um, where you see um, veterans quite visibly with the sort of you know battles of their or with the scars of their battles on on them, sitting in the streets begging for money, and people are sort of looking at that once again. I know this happened in in Britain and in France as well. But on top of this, people are now looking at them as as the losers, the people who'd lost it for Germany. So there isn't even a dignity in that that they can sit there kind of indignant about how they're treated because they've, they've sacrificed their lives and, now and, and their country won. Um, you don't even have that angle to it. So they're completely kind of left to their own devices. It, things that in, in Britain where you have, for instance, the, the, this whole um, culture that's beginning to develop around the cenotaph and, and commemoration, which is still very, very important to the British psyche, you don't get that in Germany. This, this is almost the way, I would say, for Britain to deal with that blood sacrifice, so this kind of idea that something good came out of it, the nation came together, and it actually worked to bond Britain as a nation. In Germany, it does the opposite, because people are being told, basically, yes, there are war graves, but most of them aren't in Germany, um, and, and that takes a long, long time to repatriate bodies and things like that. And on top of that, you get veterans treated like this, basically. And it's a very visible sign that everyone can see if they work th walk through a street in Berlin, um, that something is kind of wrong with the way that Germany remembers the First World War. And then you get people like Otto Dix, for instance, who the, the painting was by earlier, who are now celebrated, in hindsight, by, by historians and, and kind of art critics and, and people like that. But at the time, they were seen as kind of dragging down this kind of glorious um, purpose for which these people suffered. So if you're at home now with half your face missing, going through the 15th you know, bit of surgery to try and restore your life in some shape or form, and then somebody at Autodix comes along and paints you know, a painting of the First World War as this horrible thing that was totally futile and shouldn't have happened, then what exactly did you suffer for? What did you lose your mates for? You know, and all of that, what did women sit at home for and try and, you know, lost their probably second or third child, just about nursed, nursed one of them through? What, did, what was that, all of that for, if it isn't remembered? And that's, I think, really sunk in over the years of the Weimar Republic, and it's something that uh, Hitler can later tap into. Nazi ideology, I think, is important, though, as one of the reasons why the Second World War breaks out. I find it very, very difficult to imagine if you had, like, a, say, conservative sort of right-wing coalition in place under Hindenburg whilst he was still alive and then using kind of like a sort of conservative bloc as they were trying to do. So take Hitler out of the picture for a minute, basically, and, and the, the National Socialism as an ideology. I don't think that would have been enough to persuade people to go through all of that again and give it another go. Um, whilst Nazism is incredibly effective at persuading people to do irrational things, um, so people were sort of sat there in 1939 wondering what they, was, what, what they were asked to fight for, and National Socialism is kind of the answer to that. It taps into the, the stab in the back myth again, in that it's about um, anti-Semitism and also against the, once again against Bolshevism and against socialism. So it kind of taps into the things that people already believed. But on top of that, it gave Germans kind of a sense of togetherness and dignity back in a way, but in this really kind of fervent way in which individuals who, who disagreed with individual aspects of it were still swept away by this wave of kind of euphoria for national socialism. So it was sort of there at the right time. It's also worth pointing out that it's the only political movement at the time that is completely classless. So every other political party, every other political movement is for the middle classes, for the working classes, for the peasantry, whatever, in particular groups, Catholics even, Protestants, and so on and so forth. This 
is for everyone. Every single person who's vaguely interested in that, the Nazis will find an angle to their ideology to include you in it. And that's what made it quite persuasive, because it's that division that Weimar caused and the, the kind of remnants of the First World War caused that Hitler can kind of make up for. And when they go back to war in 1939, they do it together as one nation. And this is the same kind of dynamic that you see in 1914 when Germans are so divided and the Kaiser says to them, let's go to war together, and everyone goes, okay, let's do that, and we'll, we'll do it together, whether it's a good thing or not, but everyone's in it. I separate Hitler out here from Nazism because I think he adds another dimension to that as an individual. I think, again, I know there's been loads of like bizarre counterfactual stuff, you know, if Hitler had actually drowned when he was, I don't know, seven or something and fell into a river and that neighbor hadn't pulled him out, what would have happened? And I, you know, I could stand here all day and talk about that. But I do think if you do take him out of the picture, you would not have ended up with war in 1939. There's absolutely no way that without Hitler's own charisma and his own obsessions, the nation would have, perhaps later, perhaps at some other point, perhaps some other conflict, I'm not saying a war wouldn't have happened, but I do think the way it happened and when it happened, way earlier than most people, even within his own group of advisors were telling him to, uh, was down to Hitler's own obsessions, I think, and with the way that he was sweeping people along. Whenever something bad happens, so take, take something like uh, Kristallnacht in, in 1938, the first violent act against the Jewish community, People sat there and went, if only the Führer knew. You know, they, they couldn't believe that stuff like that was going on, and the Führer, the, this kind of you know, holier-than-holy person, uh, didn't know about that and wouldn't have done something about that. Surely, when he's told them virtually the day before that you know, the Jews need to be eradicated, and it's the same thing with, with the war as well. People sit there and are suffering um, you know, from, from the first bits of rationing or you know, are, are worried about their son going off to war, and they think, well, the Führer will make it okay, you know, because they want to believe that. It's one of those kind of so powerful psychological concepts that without Hitler, it's very hard to imagine people wouldn't have taken a step back and gone... Actually, this is complete nonsense. I mean, people weren't stupid, but they did, they did buy into Hitler's charisma, and his, his pull was so strong, in my view, that that's the bit where people, even reluctant people in 1939, go, okay, I'll go to war for the Führer. Not for, for anything else, but I'll do it for him. Um, and it's interesting as well that Hitler decides in 1934 to make the Wehrmacht actually swear their oath of allegiance directly to him. Not to Germany or to the government or to parliament, but to him personally. It's something, by the way, that's a bit of an, uh, of an ore trauma for the, for the German army now. They changed that completely after the Second World War and made it a parliamentary army. So now the army is responsible to, to parliament, which is a direct response to this, because they're worried that if Germans get told again by some charismatic individual at some point, let's go to war, they, they might do it. But a boring old parliament of 600 bureaucrats, maybe not so much. So this, in a way, this works out. But at the time, Hitler kind of reversed the whole thing and turned the Weimar Republic sort of system of how to run the army on its head and said, no, you're responsible to me. So if everything goes wrong, you're still fighting for the Führer and you'd let the Führer down if you go home now or if you desert and nobody wants to do that. Um, okay, so that's important, I think, at this point. Um, later on, so skipping forward now into the, into the 1930s, I think rearmament is also a massive, massive thing. So it sounds obvious, of course, rearmament might might lead to war and certainly a prerequisite for war. But I think the way that Hitler militarizes the entire society is quite powerful. It pulls a lot of people together. When you think people would have probably had enough at that point, this is 1935 um, when he kind of presents his new army and breaks all the, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. So we're talking, what, 16, 17 years, um, after 17 years after the, the First World War is finished. And he's telling people, actually, you all need to go back in the army. 
he reintroduces conscription, breaks the Treaty of Versailles with it, and forces people into it if they want to or not. Normally, that's not a particular pop particularly popular move. I mean, at the moment, Germany is thinking about reintroducing conscription because of the, the change in, in policy after Ukraine. And at the moment, they reckon it's about 48, 49% of Germans who would be okay with it. That's not to say that they're happy about it. Um, so Hitler does that, and it works, strangely enough. Again, as a unifying factor, because every aspect of society is militarized. You've got that, you've got uh, the, the labor um, kind of services and all those kinds of things. Whatever you do in Nazi Germany, you would do, do it wearing a uniform and following somebody else's orders. You get used to that sort of thing as a, as a lifestyle almost. Um, and that works particularly well. It's also interesting at the time when Hitler presents this army in 1935 to the world and the new Air Force, which he isn't supposed to have, and the Navy that's bigger than the three ships they were supposed to have since, since 1918. There is widespread admiration for that. I always find it really weird when you watch British newsreels from like 35 and 36. And they go, look at this amazing army, look at the Germans marching, isn't that great? And you think, you know, obviously in hindsight it's a bit obvious because we know where it ended, but people genuinely thought he was giving Germany a, a, a you know, defense mechanism back. So, you know, given that Germany was practically defenseless, that is something that people just thought, you know, fair enough. But Hitler goes way beyond that, you know, it's, it's easy to forget that he then went, you know, and took the Luftwaffe to the, to the Spanish Civil War and, and bombed Guernica and other cities to, to shreds, flying over France as he did it. So, you know, it's all of those things, but yet there's international and domestic admiration for the way that he sort of pulled Germany back out of uh, this, this kind of depressive period that they were in after the First World War. And I think remilitarization plays a huge role in this. I think, again, perhaps a, a slightly obvious thing, I want to say a few things about the Hitler youth, um, because I think that's a little bit exaggerated as a role why, why, why Germany goes to the Second World War. I mean, once again, if you bear in mind that this only exists, well, it exists since the 1920s, but it's only a mass movement um, since Hitler came into power in 1933, so you're really talking about six years' worth of all-encompassing youth exposure to, to Nazi ideology. But it is quite powerful to that generation. And you see this, for instance, when you talk to uh, Canadian veterans in particular who had their set-tos with the Hitler Youth um, after the D-Day landings. Uh, the, the amount of fervent like, hatred and ideology in these young boys' minds is really was really quite something. So there is something to that, but it's that specific generation that's worth bearing in mind. It's really only one group of within the whole of, of the, you know, kind of people that they sent off to war, basically. It's only one small fraction that has actually gone through the system. But it does, it is very, very effective. There's also a lot of boys who don't actually like it, it's maybe worth pointing out. I mean, this, this was quite effective because, it, once again, it transcended class. So they were working-class boys from, say, you know, like some mining community in the Ruhr, and they suddenly walked across a street somewhere in their smart uniforms, which were way smarter than any, you know, shirt that they had with, like, holes and things in it, free from the Nazi party given to the families, so families when, you know, whatever, they get some free clothes, fine. Um, and they suddenly got respect. You know, they, they were basically from working-class community that were normally, like, looked down upon, and suddenly everyone walking along the same street as they did had to stop and salute them, and that's really quite a powerful thing. And they're walking side by side with the children of the aristocracy and the children of the middle classes, and it does actually work quite well in terms of drawing them in because they feel the Nazis are for them. It's quite a powerful thing that the Nazis present themselves as an exciting new movement, and it gets all the young people, basically, for the first time, appreciated. I mean, if you speak to young people today, they feel even more so than older people that politicians are detached from them. It's not their system, because we don't, in democracies, we don't tend to focus on people that can't vote. What's the point? 
Um, Hitler hasn't got that problem because he doesn't obviously need votes. Um, and hence why he can go, you know what, you old people, if you don't like me, I'm just going to ignore you because you'll die out. Um, and then once I've got your young people on side, they're mine. And he actually said that on the radio as well, which I always find a bit peculiar, you know, sort of speaking into people's living rooms, going, ha-ha, your children are already mine. It's a bit creepy, but it did work um, at the time. Um, the girls, if we go to the next slide, um, I just wanted to quickly point out um, the sort of counterpart to that, the League of the German Maidens, uh, because that's often um, seen as something that was quite boring by comparison, and it's uh, usually people, when they describe it, focus on the way that they learned how to be like mothers and housewives, and yes, they did all of that, but when you speak to people who are actually in it, they all describe the exact same things that the boys do, so it's stuff like camaraderie, the campfires, the, the really quite physical activities that they were made to do as well, so it was for, for Nazi ideological reasons a lot of like physical stuff involved with this as well, basically, where they were doing competitive sports and things like that. And again, if you're from some sort of rural household, you know, where your mother would tell you that you must be a mother and a housewife, that bit is fine. They, they can deal with that because they get told the exact same thing at home. But on top of that, they get to, you know, perform on public events, they, they get recognition, they get medals for, for their sporting achievements, they get to go on, on, like I said, sort of camping trips and things around the campfire, just like the boys do, and form these, like, bonds with the with the other girls in there. Um, and then there's also a lot of stuff on, you know, how to do farming, how to fix stuff. You know, they, they basically, by the end of this, they can fix like a tractor engine, for example. The whole point was, and the point that I'm making here as well, is that they also get prepared for war. This is not just make children and, and you know, every that you've done your bit for the Führer if you've got eight children. But on top of that, it's also, we're probably going to send men out to war for four, five, six, seven years, however long it takes. And in the meantime, you need to run the entire household by yourself. And that includes pulling a plow across a field or, like I said, fixing stuff or, you know, maintaining the entire household by themselves. So in a way, this also is a psychological way of preparing people for war because they don't want to end up in the situation in 1914 where women felt they just couldn't deal with the entire amount of stuff they were suddenly supposed to do. There's obviously childcare, running the household, getting the harvest in, all of that sort of stuff whilst men were away and the actual horses and, and oxen and things have been requisitioned for the war effort as well. So this is supposed to tell women you can do this, um, you know, and, and you'll be recognized for it. You get medals and things as well. And on top of that, it's telling men your women won't be, um, you know, kind of walking around in fancy clothes and sitting in a bar in Berlin smoking. No, no, they, they'll be all very chaste, modest-looking women that run the household. Don't worry, you can go away for four years, and when you come back, your house will still be standing, your children will be looked after, and your wife hasn't run away with somebody else. So it's, it's kind of psychologically preparing the entire population for a long war, so it doesn't seem as frightening when it finally happens. Okay, can we go to the next one? Um, on this bit I said earlier about international recognition, I just want to say that again, because people did not find the prospect of Germany remilitarizing particularly frightening on the whole in the 1930s. You got Hitler as the man of the year in the Time magazine in uh, 38, I think, um, which I know they have controversial choices, and part of the reason that they do things <laughs> uh, is to highlight people's impact rather than praising them, but it's still a bit out there as a choice um, on, the, on the title cover. Um, and, you know, just, just sort of highlight things like appeasement, and, and that's not to, to put a negative spin on it, it's just to say that people treated Hitler as a statesman. They saw him as a reasonable person that you can talk to, make deals with, um, shake hands with, be seen with in public. You know, you've obviously got that famous photograph of the, 
of the British um, football team as well, doing the Hitler salute, all of that just indicates not a support for Nazism, but a support for a kind of rejuvenated Germany that is kind of just doing what every other state does, and that's how it was, that's how it was seen by, by people. So it's one thing, again, in 1939, when war does break out, people look back and think, well, you know, we couldn't have seen this coming because they, they didn't. Okay. Um, Hitler again. Sorry, I bring him in there twice, but I do think there's another angle to Hitler as well that is quite important in this context, um, namely his own biography. So earlier I talked a little bit about his ideological um, background and also his, his charisma and his just sort of ability to pull people along that weren't entirely convinced with his policies. If you think about the fact that he's from Austria, which the Austrians don't like to do because they were the first victims of the, first, uh, of the Second World War somehow, um, but the, the way that Hitler's own obsession with getting Austria into the Reich is hugely important in my view. If you imagine for a minute you had somebody like Hitler, but they were a Prussian, say, or somebody from the north, there's absolutely no way they would have identified with the same kind of fervor and necessity Austria is one of the first things that needs to be kind of um, dealt with, because that wasn't part of Germany during and before the First World War. That's not making up for the First World War and the losses that, that were um, suffered there. They would have perhaps gone for the, maybe for the Sudetenland or the Polish corridor or whatever, but Austria basically is something on Hitler's mind. He wants to be German so desperately that making Austria German is kind of the way around that. And this becomes the first success. This is a completely bloodless exercise um, in getting something done, getting territory without actually having to go into a long, brutal war. And it gets Germans and, and most importantly, perhaps Hitler's inner circle into a mindset where, okay, we were wrong about this, they warned him about it and said, well, surely people will do something if we annex Austria. And Hitler goes, no, no, that, that'd be fine. We'll just tell the Austrians that they have to tell everybody that they want it as well. And it worked. And then he got away with that. Same with the Sudetenland. You know, people said to him, you can't just go and do that and grab the state. They'll never give it to you. And then Hitler sits there in, M in Munich and negotiates it and he gets it perfectly legally goes on and takes the rest of Czechoslovakia afterwards, and his generals are again saying, what are you doing? We can't go to war right now. And he gets away with one thing after another. But this thing with Austria does give him a lot of confidence. It gives him international kudos once again. And it tells people, when he tells them to go to war and, and invade Poland in 1939, it won't be all that bad. Look, people said it was going to be bad when I marched into the Rhineland, when I did Austria, when I did all these things. Um, and he gets away with every single thing. When he crosses that line into Poland, there's no telling at this point what the Allies will actually do about it. Um, and people kind of just go, well, Hitler was right before, so it'll be fine. Um, and the other thing to mention in his biography is that, of course, he was a soldier during the First World War. And unlike many of the other public figures like Hindenburg and, and other people in this kind of, um, on the more lofty cycles, the circles of the, of the military, um, he was a lowly corporal. And so to kind of go back to the people and ask them to go to war is a completely different thing if you know what you're talking about. He can say to them, I know what it's like. You know, I've been in hospital with um, gas poisoning and, and things like that. He'd been temporarily blinded by that. You know, he's gone through all of these things. He was frustrated at the end of the First World War. He'd seen his mates being blown up. And he now goes back to them and says, I know what I'm asking you to do. And that's a far more powerful thing than somebody, you know, saying to them, well, I didn't get my line on the map moved this far, so can we just try again, please? And, and that's quite a powerful thing as well. And then the last thing, because of the, the speech that I picked up earlier, I should have maybe put a bit of context around that. Goebbels gave that speech that I mentioned right at the beginning in February 1943. So this is after Stalingrad had just been um, lost uh, completely. So you've literally got the surrender just shortly before that speech. 
um, El Alamein happened in the, the autumn the year before, you've got Kursk, uh, you've got Casablanca, for example, you know, for the first time sort of asking for complete and utter surrender. It's not looking good. And the question is how did, you know, from even if you accept in 1939 that you have to go to war, why is there still support for it in 1943, even if it's not big, but why do people carry on fighting? Because Barbarossa does change everything. When Hitler invades the Soviet Union in 1941, people are instantly shocked. It's really interesting when you see the, the mood change and people's like diaries and notes and things, and they go, what's he thinking? You know, even ordinary people who kind of got their head around the idea that, okay, the other stuff worked, got France, got Western Europe, got Poland done much more quickly once again than people thought. So that's all good. But the Soviet Union, nobody's ever managed to do that. Um, and yet people sort of stick with it because by then, I think, they kind of got into a mindset whereby they're, they're sort of almost committed to it now. And it's again Hitler and his ideology and, and the kind of staggered rationing that's pulling people through. It is really quite something that he managed to keep um, kind of morale and the, and the fighting going almost until the end when you think about it. This is totally pointless. If you look at it now, and, and look back on it and think, well, actually, you know, that's a bit much to assume that you're going to win all of that um, somehow. Um, and yet people at the time saw the same thing, but carried on fighting, even when they're in Berlin, you know, li literally like around the Reichstag in the center, and they still carry on fighting the Soviets, a lot of them. Um, and, and that's, I think, due to, to a combination of all of those factors. So to cut a very long story short, <laughs> I think this whole thing is a complete and perfect storm of all of these factors. I think if you take one or even sort of one or two of them out, you would not have ended up with war in, in 1939. Um, because it is really quite astonishing when you take a step back from that and think, actually, people didn't want to go to war. You've got an entire generation there sitting there remembering what the First World War was like, and yet he got them to do that. Um, and I think, like, take Hitler out, take Nazism out of the equation, take the economic problems out, take the First World War most importantly out, any of those, and you would not have ended up with war in 1939. Is, if you could travel back there now with like a time machine or something, pick one of the reasons and deal with it, don't try and do all of it, but that would probably be enough. So if anyone ever <laughs> manages that, uh, that's the way to think about this, because I do think you know, there's lots of books obviously been written about this, highlighting individual aspects and, and why they're more important than others. But I think they're all necessary to create this really quite bizarre situation where you do end up with an even bigger war a generation after the war that was supposed to end all wars. And that's a good cue for me to end, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Are you going to take some questions? Yeah, happy to. When Hitler um, actually became Chancellor, there was talk amongst the, well, not the intelligentsia, the, the power in the land that they could control him. How are they so naive? <laughs> You're asking me. Um, I think it was a lot to do with social arrogance, I think. So the way that you've got basically the, the sort of Prussian aristocracy, the Juncker class sitting there, people like Franz von Papen, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, I mean, the one is a little bit of a clue there, but they're basically, I think, of the opinion that he's just a sort of little jumped-up Austrian who comes from a lower-middle-class background and doesn't, neither geographically nor religious, I mean, he's Catholic as well, and therefore, obviously, in those circles that he's now uh, frequenting, uh, people think he's just odd in every way, and I think that's why they, they couldn't quite place him psychologically, because he's such an enigma, he's so odd and weird. I mean, you, you host like a dinner party, and they're just used to doing these things, obviously, with you know donors and industrialists and people, and there's Hitler with his glass of wine pouring sugar into it. You know, people are just like, what are you doing? Well, you're so used to drinking cheap wine, and people did that at the time because it was horrible. Um, that he just hadn't got used to the idea that he might have a nice glass of wine in his hand that doesn't need sugar in it. So it's just stuff like that, you know, and you think he looks like a bit of an idiot doing something like that, or he'd walk into a room with his lederhosen on, you know, with his socks, like, strapped up and, like, shorts, basically, when there's everyone else in dinner suits, um, and the piano is going somewhere in the corner. So people just thought he was a bit of an oddball and didn't um, fit into any of the categories, and therefore it's easy to forget how classless society still was. I mean, we think it's a problem now, but at the time, certainly, people would have looked down on them not just as, like, socially inferior, but also as, you know, just a useful idiot, basically, that can be controlled. Um, and I think that's probably the main reason why they, they thought they could do that. Because they all knew each other for years as well and had kind of, you know, done various different political intrigues before, and he was useful for as long as he was going to be useful and then would be, would be chucked. And also the fact that they didn't anticipate democracy to last. Um, so this kind of idea that the people need to be guided is still very much there. And if Hitler can be used to, to make that work, and then once the public kind of goes in another direction and wants something else again, um, they give them something else. So I think that was the, was the main problem with it. Interested to understand your thoughts on you know, the people's reaction after the Enabling Act and sort of the removal of sort of parliamentary democracy there wasn't a sort of massive upsurge against that, and it always kind of just followed through, and people went, oh, okay, fair enough. Yep. We've lost democracy. It's one of my key gripes. I write about the, the GDR East Germany a lot in a similar context, in the sense that people always, with both of those, assume that um, a liberal Western democracy is the natural way to be. It's a total thing. Like I've, you know, Being from East Germany myself, I find that totally bizarre. Like The way that we just assume that if people get given a chance, they will automatically revert to a democratic, Western, liberal, multi-party system. It's just weird. I mean, when you think that Germans have had democracy at that point, like full democracy, that is, since 1919, and that's their only experience with it, and they've just gone through all of that, there's absolutely no indication that it works. You know, people sit there and they think, well, you know, politicians squabble in Parliament and 
People get frustrated and even stop reading the papers because they get so annoyed with it. Um, the real politics seems to happen on the street, you know, with the street brawls happening everywhere. It's worth pointing out that that violence I was talking about earlier even happens in Parliament. You have Walter Albrecht, who's later the leader of the GDR, who's at the time the leader of the Communist Party, and Goebbels on the other side, each riling their own you know, supporters, like MPs, up until they literally whack each other with you know, chairs over the head and things. There's, there's one example where an MP, for the rest of his life, he lost one leg because they basically broke a chair leg over his knee um, and, and broke his kneecap in, in a parliamentary discussion. Um, you know, it's those kinds of things. People just look at it and think this is ridiculous. You know, if, if only we had the Kaiser back. And then somebody, first of all, like Hindenburg comes in and, and sort of almost replaces the Kaiser in kind of this idea that, oh, there's this wise old man who sits at the top of everything, like a benevolent king kind of thing. Um, and then Hitler steps into that role once Hindenburg dies quite neatly and then kind of takes over both his office and his function as the kind of wise you know, figure that, that almost kind of demigod-like sits on top of everything and knows everything. And people find that reassuring. So there's, in my view, there's very little appetite for democracy at the time, and the Weimar Republic, I think, would have crumbled anyway without Nazi support. I think the Nazis stepped in to avoid that was existing rather than creating that void in the first place. Um, you talk mostly in terms of Germany as a whole, but I was wondering if there were particular kind of regional patterns, like some areas where they were more pro-war, broadly speaking, and other areas where they were less, or, I mean, you did talk about the Freikorps yep. cities, but if there were particular regional patterns in your narrative. Yeah, the, and, and that's, that doesn't always overlap with support for the Nazis either, which is quite interesting. So you have areas that support Nazism, but aren't very pro-war and vice versa. Um, the least, and this is the same in 1914, the least uh, popular, um, well, the regions where war is least popular is, again, in the countryside is the way that people had experienced the requisitioning of horses, of, of grain, of, of everything, basically, and then suffered real poverty in those regions. They were already quite badly off beforehand, um, and they were again neglected throughout the entire uh, Weimar Republic, which focused very much, as, as we do now, on Berlin and on this kind of glittering city life and all that. And they're left behind, and now they think, well, we've already been forgotten, and if we... Hitler's just, you know, just got us back because he makes this cult out of the kind of noble life of the peasant farmer, really, of, of this whole blood and soil thing. Um, and they now think, right, you know, he's, he's going to throw all of that away now and do exactly the same to us as happened in 1914. Um, and they are indeed leaving women and children behind, you know, sort of dealing with uh, a, a complex kind of, you know, say, like, at that point, almost industrial agricultural sector. Um, so they are the least um, kind of keen to go. Um, and then you do have cities like Berlin, for example, which Goebbels sort of dubbed Red Berlin for a reason, um, and, and they are very, very anti-everything, uh, pretty much. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the thing is, because the socialists and the communists had been sort of artificially removed right at the beginning in 1933, that anger doesn't really spill out onto the streets anymore. There isn't anyone there to take charge of that, because public life's basically disappeared, as have trade unions and, and any other kind of means of organising support. So I would say... The working class areas were uh, working class and uh, countryside were the least happy to go. Um, in the rural as well, they're hugely worried about, you know, already kind of just about scraping an income, like industrial workers and miners and people like that. And now they get requisitioned to fight in the army, and their families are left um, at home with, without uh, this kind of stable income. Hi, Katia. Um, you talk about Hitler with the uh, year age seven, nearly drowning and surviving, and the rest is history. Um, there was another major factor, the beer, the beer Hall Putsch, 23, I think, oh, I don't yep. date, but 
obviously he, he starts a political coup, tries to overthrow the government and then goes to trial and rather than being hung as a traitor, instead he does two years in prison and writes his, writes his kind of Mein Kampf and was that another turning point? I mean, if he'd have died there, was the momentum already in place with other people that surrounded him to carry on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, people, whilst he's in prison, um, people do try and take over the party, which is quite an interesting dynamic. I think that's a bit under-researched. So you have people like uh, the Strasser brothers, for example, um, who are uh, northern in outlook and China, and they've always hated the way that the uh, kind of party, Hitler's party, was very much centred in Munich. Uh, where they had very little influence. And they were also, like Goebbels actually, a lot more on the socialist end of the national socialism. Um, so they would have sort of drawn the, the whole party further into that direction. And they saw a chance when he was in prison to take over, and none of them managed to successfully build anything up. I mean, Strasser, to some extent, did get a bit, little bit of support, but then once Hitler's out, he just calls a party conference and says, well, do you want him or me? And they overwhelmingly vote for him again. And I think that's a good example, actually, to see just how much pull he has. And I think the other thing about the, the Munich putsch is that because the courts give him unlimited speaking time, and that's not a coincidence, like normally when you make your own defensive statement, at some point they would say to you, well, we get it now, you're innocent, like sit down. Um, but he's allowed like virtually unlimited speaking time and makes the courts into like one of his speeches effectively. So he stands there like for three hours ranting about the Treaty of Versailles and how he was only trying to do the right thing for Germany and this, that and the other. And the courtroom is packed with journalists. Uh, there are people there from Hamburg, from, from the rural regions, from everywhere, reporting verbatim what Hitler said in the court case in the in the court in the trial. Um, and that, of course, then gets read by people everywhere, and suddenly Hitler's catapulted from being this like weird local celebrity in Munich that people go to, you know, because they've heard it's odd to be at one of his like speeches, to being a figure of of kind of national uh, rallying power. And in, in that sense, it's another turning point there that helped him. But I think with that sort of thing, you know, you can see something else taking that position. You know, any kind of event that would have given him enough um, publicity. Would have done. Would have had the same effect. So I'm. I'm not sure. 1923 is as much of a turning point in that respect. But it is because it gets Hitler to rethink everything, and it gets the party to realise that they need Hitler, whereas previously there were arguments. And last point on that, I, I promise I'll be quick, um, is that Hitler at this point realises that revolutions don't work in Germany. Like as, as Stalin once famous said, Germans would have to step on the grass to start a revolution, and that's not going <laughs> to happen. Um, and Hitler realises exactly the same thing. Like Germans are just too. It doesn't matter how unhappy they are. I mean, the current situation is a good example. You don't get mass anger. They don't. They're not like the French. They don't set cars on fire. They don't. You know, it doesn't work. And he realizes that because he was so uh, obsessed with the way that he was famous and everything was kind of just rightly aligned in the, in the crisis year of 1923, and then it doesn't work. And that realizes, makes him realize, actually, I do need to go and do propaganda and, and use democracy to destroy democracy in the end. So it is a turning point in that respect. Uh, Kasia, hi. I know you're only four years old when the Berlin Wall came down, but was there a difference in the legacy of how it was taught in the East? his legacy, so to what, what was taught in the West? Yeah, completely. I mean, the, and this lasted way into the 90s and, and so on as well. So the, the way that the, that the East saw it, or the way that Stalin saw it to start with, he, he quite famously said the Hitlers come and go, but the German people stay. So he immediately, because of his own kind of weird love-hate relationship with Germany, 
like the culture, like Goethe and all of that stuff, like classical music, Beethoven and all that. And he thought there's something good there that we can preserve. We just need to get, like, almost exercise the Nazism out of people. So this meant that denazification effectively meant that you just need to take the ideology back out. The people themselves don't have to be subdued. If somebody can like credibly say um, that they've changed, <laughs> for example, then they can be reintegrated, but they have to constantly prove that they have actually changed. Whilst the approach in the West was, well, we've done that now. They, they said literally took 1945, and, and those of you who were here last year, I think I talked about that here, a zero hour, kind of like a clean line. It's almost like we've done that, and now we're different people like, instantly, and, and we're going to move away from that. And because neither the, well, certainly the Americans wouldn't have that, I think you lot were a little bit more pragmatic. So uh, I suppose in terms of getting people back into positions, so where like doctors and engineers and people like that were needed. But the Americans were initially at least obsessed with the idea that there's something intrinsically evil, militaristic about the Germans and they need to be kept down. I mean, quite famously, obviously NATO, one of its purposes was to keep the Germans down, the Russians out and so on and so forth. So uh, that's the different approach, and you see that going through the entire thing. And, and East Germany in particular made a point of trying to show just how evil Nazism was as an ideology. So I think, again, I talked about this last year, but like Buchenwald, for example, a concentration camp that was in, on East German soil, um, they had a whole exhibition of really quite grim stuff, and that was still there at the beginning of the 90s as well, and everyone was like, I want to go there and see it, and that obviously had completely the wrong effect. But it was things like you know, skin samples or the, 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 the infamous lampshade that was made of human skin and all of that stuff. And they had it there, knowing full well, or kind of not really caring whether it's real or not, because nobody really knows. They just went, well, it shows that uh, kind of capitalism leads to imperialism, leads to fascism, leads to Nazism, and this is the end result of it. So what they're trying to say is, don't buy into this consumerism thing because this is where you'll end up. Um, and that, I think, was, was something that was really quite intrinsically taught in the, in the East, whilst the West initially tried to forget about it. And then when um, Billy Brandt and the social democratic kind of era set in in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, you see a change where the concentration camps are suddenly turned into museums and things like that, and, and you, you begin to see it's, it's introduced in school curriculums and so on. And now it's sort of never again... Um, kind of slogan that is being used, um, which leads to other problems, as we can see with Ukraine at the moment. But they're, yeah, they're very different approaches. Everyone, I think if we ever sort of see at this festival or any other a better hours entertainment than that, uh, we'll be doing well. A huge round of applause for Catherine. Thank you.